Hello, and welcome to Talking and Shul, a roundtable podcast. I'm your host, Tamar Fox, and I've got Zahava Stadler joining us from Toronto. Hi, Zahava. Hey, Tamar. And we have Mimi Lewis joining us from Cambridge, Mass. Hi, Mimi. Hey, Tamar. Hey, Zahava. This month, we're talking about a new online training program to become a mikvah guide from Mayim Chaim. For that segment, we'll be joined by Jessica Rosenberg, the director of the Rising Tide Open Waters Mikvah Network from Mayim Chaim. And for our second segment, we'll be reflecting on the life and legacy of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg of Blessed Memory. Okay, Mimi, would you like to kick things off? Yeah, so we are, as Tamar said, really excited to be joined by Jessica Rosenberg, um, who works for Mayim Chaim and is the director of the Rising Tide Open Waters Mikvah Network. So I think the first thing that we need, Jessica, is just sort of an understanding of what does that mean, Open Waters Mikvah Network? Tell us what this what this is. Absolutely. Base level, the Rising Tide Open Waters Mikvah Network is a network of mikvah oath that are committed to the open mikvah movement. And what does that mean? It just means that any Jew who wants to access the mikvah for any reason is able to do so. So the mikvah is a ritual that um, has been you know, one that isn't so accessible to Jews. It's one that's, you know, had a lot of rules and regulations around it. So Rising Tide is a network that has member mikvah oat, um, and I'll get more into that, which types of mikvah oat are in it in a moment, um, that are committed to making this ritual an accessible ritual for people who want to mark life transitions or uh, immerse on their birthday or went through a hard time and think that this is a piece of incredible spiritual technology that's something they can incorporate into their lives. It's not just for commanded reasons. It's reasons that, you know, you can go for a spiritual calling for, um, you know, to mark anything that you want. And so what does it mean to join Rising Tide? So right now we have 34 member um, communities and those range from brick and mortar existing mikvah oat to um, people who support mikvah that just want to be involved in this movement to communities that are exploring what it might take to build a community open mikvah in, in their town, in their city, where they live. So we have um, brick and mortar mikvahs. We have mikvah projects such as Immerse NYC, which is um, a open mikvah project, which utilizes a uh, Orthodox mikvah in New York. And then we have different communities throughout the world, actually, that are exploring what it means to or what it takes to build a mikvah how to build the mikvah, how to get the community engaged. They may be like well underway of breaking ground to just, it's an idea that someone had in their head and they're trying to figure out how to make it a reality. And so I have been able to go to my Chaim mikvah in, the Bo- in Newton outside Boston. Um, and it's like such a wonderful, beautiful, inclusive, open, welcome space. Um, and I, I guess I always had the impression that that is not what many mikvahot are in our country. Um, you know, it's so I'm curious, like, are we trying is one of the efforts to make them all as welcome, open and beautiful as Maim Chaim gets to be? I mean, 
Yes, and you know, different community have their own uh, flavors and um, needs and wants. So it's certainly not to make you know a, a country of the same mikvah, but to support um, people in their own communities and give them the resources and support around building the mikvah oath that their community feel they need. So absolutely, like making them welcome and inclusive and warm, and making guests feel supported and saying, you know, we have a ceremony for that, or do you want to witness? And just making sure that, you know, people feel that they're supported in this, in this ritual. And of course, making it beautiful and all of that. So yes, and what the community feels that is best for them and how we can support them in, in that effort. So, so yes, and. (laughs) I wonder if we should just, um, step back for one second, because I don't think we've defined the word mikvah in this segment yet. So just in case anybody listening isn't clear on what a mikvah is, I think the usual translation is ritual bath, but that might sound a little stiff. Jessica, if you have sort of a, a preferred way of explaining what a mikvah is. Yeah, a mikvah um, is, is a ritual immersion in water. And um, traditionally, it's been used to um, mark conversion to um, uphold nida, which is a practice of um, marking the end of a woman's cycle um, and also for t- traditionally is used um, uh, when a woman is getting married, she'll go to the mikvah before her for her wedding. Um, but the open mikvah movement is supporting mikvah use to mark life transitions again for the the gamut of reasons that one might want to immerse, whether it's from a bar mitzvah to mourning to celebrating getting a new job to graduations to whatever it might be. Can you talk more about what? what you would say the difference is between an open mikvah and any other kind of mikvah, because I think that it's not super clear to me kind of what that distinction is. Sure. Let me just tell you what a, what an open mikvah does. And I mean, people can draw maybe their own conclusions about what another one might not do. Um, but so an open mikvah would, you know, not ensure that you are, are or are not on your period when you would come. They would not ensure that you are or are not married when you would come. They would not tell you the correct way to um, immerse in the exact bracha you need to say and that you need to have a witness to your immersion. So um, we support the training of guides that, you know, will work with you to make you feel comfortable and supported for your immersion and may work with you to create a ceremony or to offer you a variety of ceremonies or blessings you might want to use and then offer to be a witness to that immersion if you so want one. So to make you feel comfortable, welcome, and supported, and that you are welcome here, no matter what reason you brought you here, you are welcome here, and you are welcome to have the experience that you want to have here. I think that actually it's it's maybe useful to say what the uh, standard mikvah experience is like um, in at least in the United States. So you know, I am a regular mikvah user for traditional reasons, um, and I've used. I don't know, roughly 10 different mikvah oat in my life, I think, um, all of which were in uh, North America. Um, and the things that Jessica just rattled off are um, the opposite is not necessarily the norm 
it's more of a set of assumptions in my experience. So when you say no one's going to make sure that you finished your period at a certain time, counted the right number of days, did the proper procedures to check that your period was really over, did a certain set of preparations, those are all things that are assumed when you make an appointment at a mikvah, that you show up at a certain point in your menstrual cycle having done certain preparatory steps and that you are interested in affecting a certain change in your technical status at that moment by using the mikvah. All of that is assumed. There's probably a checklist in the room reminding you, did you do all these things? Um, but there's not, uh, it, there's not like any external accountability for any of that, right? You can, there's, it's sort of a, just an assumption that that's why you're here. Um, and you know, if somebody asks, do you want to buy some cloths? And the answer is yes, because I perform a series of internal checks to make sure with a technical set of cloths that I am not currently bleeding in accordance with the way I was taught by a teacher in a particular procedure, or why would anybody want to buy such a set of cloths? Like (laughs) that would be offered to you probably at checkout. So it's not necessarily, I think there's this sense often when people talk about mikvah that the mikvah experience is um, very rigid and prescripted and prescripted is not a word, rigid and prescribed slash prescriptive and that, um, and that you're getting heavily quizzed on your personal halachic practice. And occasionally it's like that. And that's very regrettable. Sometimes that happens and people are very Uh, you know, insensitive. And my understanding from speaking to friends is that um, the experience is often worse in Israel. The set of assumptions around a non-open mikvah is simply that if you're not following these practices, that it's probably a don't ask, don't tell situation, as opposed to something being affirmatively open, affirmatively open to whatever ceremony you're trying to mark and whatever process you have or have not engaged in and whatever kind of immersion experience you want. That's distinct. I would say the only thing that's truly enforced in the standard, not open, uh, orthodox run mikvah that is the the sort of modal mikvah in North America um, is that somebody's there checking, um, that a person is there to be present to make sure that you immerse fully underwater. Um, that's the only thing that you sort of can avoid, despite whatever you might want. I have not been to as many mikvahs as you, Zahava, but... Um I've been to my my fair share more than I w- wished to have been uh, at, and uh, I did. I have experienced, I would say, a variety of interrogation methods. <laughs> that that sounds worse than it is, but just like a variety of level of questioning of my practice, and it does have a significant effect on the experience. <laughs> but on the other hand. It's very, very interesting to me to like see a lot of the kind of work around renewing the kind of making the mikvah experience into what I think Maim Chaim makes it into, which is like something that you can affirmatively choose to mark life events that, you know, uh, you know, ritual technology, like all of that kind of language is like very far from my lived experience of just like wow, I'm just like naked in a room with another lady so I can have sex tonight. Like, (laughs) what a world. Um, (laughs) And Tamar, I'll say that perhaps the lack of policing that I experience is in part that there's a signaling thing, right? Like I walk into a mikvah and I project orthodox in a way that probably, um, it, it probably 
quiets the mind of people that might otherwise be suspicious that I don't check all the boxes. So I should acknowledge that maybe my experience is skewed in that way. Yeah. I mean, I, I flatter myself that I can play the orthodox role when I need to. <laughs> but uh, now that I have purple hair, uh, it is more complex. And I have been asked if I can remove the purple hair, which is like, I mean, it is attached to my body. Not easily. Um, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's just it's really interesting to me because I think that I'm like both. It's one of those things where it's like you don't want to yuck anyone else's yum, but you also are like really, this is, this is the thing that you're really excited about. But on the other hand, you're like, well, maybe if somebody had roasted Brussels sprouts instead of boiling them, I would also like Brussels sprouts. <laughs> like, um, yeah. I mean, I wonder if the language of yuck and yum just doesn't necessarily work when we're talking about halachic um, obligations. Like if it, if you feel this is, if this is necessary for you to observe the laws of family purity for you and your family, then like it might be yucky, but that doesn't even really necessarily enter the equation. Whereas if you're choosing to go to the mikvah to mark certain moments, then you do want it to be a slightly different experience. Uh, maybe I'm projecting my... But I just want to, I just want to um, make something clear that like, for example, at my Haim, and I know with many of our other member, um, like brick and mortar, um, mikvah, oh, that the people who do come to immerse do run the gamut from people who have like ne maybe never gone to synagogue to come every month. So like it is an open place, not just for people to explore the use of mikvah, but who are actively utilizing mikvah for commanded reasons, um, or are coming for their own kind of imagination of Nida and are not Orthodox, but are, you know, m marking monthly for their own reasons. So I just want to be clear that like the open mikvah movement isn't just for, you know, creative uses, but it is also, you know, for all of them um, and to, you know, welcome people with the same, um, you know, open arms for the, the full variety of reasons. And I think, let's be honest, like, it would be nice for everybody utilizing a mikvah if it's lovely, <laughs> you know, like, um, and I think, I don't know, maybe because of sort of the political season that we're experiencing in the United States, I'm sort I'm drawn to the idea of spaces where people from a variety of backgrounds and experiences use the same space. And I think, you know, within our synagogues, we're, um, we're sort of fraction, factioned off by our, um, our movements or our denominations often. Um, and the mikvah can be a place ideally that goes, that spans those denominations and allows women to meet one another, or at least be in the same space and encounter one another. And actually, that's that's kind of just the point. The point isn't just mikvah, which like, you know, I'm happy to talk about mikvah all day long and ritual exploration all day long. But the point is actually that it, it does ripple out, to make a water pun, um, throughout the whole community that you do have a space that is welcome and inclusive for everyone. Because it, as you mentioned, there aren't a ton of spaces that really, in a community, serve everyone. There are a lot of factions or fractions within the community and having a space that's really for everyone to utilize is, is, you know, something that does make the community 
more welcoming, more open, more inclusive. Well, I want to admit something that on a previous episode, um, we had discussed, this is a ways back, but we had discussed, um, for whatever reason, we were talking about the the website Ritual Well and people's constructed rituals. And we were sort of poking fun at the fact that like, there's mikvah for everything. Um, you can go to mikvah for this and go to mikvah for that. And like, why would you ever leave the mikvah? Like, and <laughs> <laughs> I think that, um, I, I, you know, I think Tamara's previous comment about not yucking other people's yums kind of means like, to me, Tamara, as I understood it is like, uh, it doesn't occur to me necessarily to use the mikvah for sort of uh, every personal meaningful event in my life, but clearly to a lot of people, the mikvah is an instinctively good place to do that. And I'm wondering, Jessica, maybe if you could talk a little bit about why, like why do people seem to turn to the mikvah in your experience, acquaintance, whatever, for to mark things like that or to 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 create new ritual moments in their lives? It's a great question. I don't have like hard data answers for you. I think that um, in the well of Jewish wisdom, I think it's something that feels really tangible. I think it feels really uh, visceral, like you're you're physically immersing in a body of water. You're meant to like you know think about why you're you're there. You prep, like you enter this space, you have an intention, you go through the, the preparatory steps, you enter the pool, you immerse as, you know, typically three times, but, you know, up to you if you're feeling a different sort of way, depending on why you're there. And, you know, the water, I mean, I grew up around the beach and the ocean and like this might just be my, my personal feeling but like whenever I'm really too far from the water I feel like rather disconnected and I think the water is a very powerful tool to, to it holds you it washes over you it you know makes you feel different it can you know I immersed on Yom Kippur in a natural body of water near my house and like I like, I needed that. Like it really like gave me something and I can't like put into perfect words what that is or what I hear from people around me. But I think that, um, there's something, you know, very essential about it. I mean, it's water, like it makes up so much of us. It's, you know, a substance that's been around since the beginning of time. And, you know, in the beginning of Tanakh, like in the Torah, like God collects the waters and like, that's a mikvah. Like it feels rather like baseline. Um, I would love to hear more about the online training and specifically Absolutely. like what is different about this? I'm assuming that the online training is at least in part due to COVID. Um, but I'm curious. about. Oh, well then I would love to hear about that. And I Absolutely. am curious about, I assume that the advantage of doing it online is like lots of people who might not be able to come to my Chaim can do it, but I'm curious about kind of how, how it works to do um, something like this online. Absolutely. So Mayim Haim does have an in-person training for guides at Mayim Haim. But the point of Rising Tide um, putting out this training is that, again, we have these member communities all over the world. So running an in-person training is, um, you know, very costly and you need people to travel, which during COVID is obviously not um, possible. But pre-COVID, the um, intention, which it was intended to be put online, it was actually built and put online before COVID hit, um, 
was that it was making this accessible, not just to our member communities around the world, but also to, you know, anyone who's interested in, in learning more about Mikva and guiding if it's independently or just learning more, it's open and accessible to them, which like, as I've said so many times, like openness and accessibility is like pivotal to um, the work that we're doing. And um, so, yeah, the intention was to make it available online. So what we did was we took, um, we adapted Mayim Haim's in-person training, which was created in 2003 and trained over 200 guides in the Boston area. And then took some um, feedback and information from Rising Tide member communities and put it into a asynchronous like module based learning platform um so it lives online in this platform and it's actually not there are zoom sessions there are three zoom sessions it's an eight-week course so there's one at the beginning the middle and the end um but participants go through the course asynchronously so they log on about two times a week and complete different types of learning um activities that are hosted on the platform. So whether it's a reading or a video or a response to a prompt and then having a conversation with other cohort members in the program, um, you're kind of engaging with different modalities and different information each week or each time you log on. Um, and it takes you through the course one week at a time. And um, you do that asynchronously. And then we have the three Zoom sessions with which complement that learning so that the cohort can gather, you can see each other, you can connect with people, you can have a conversation. Um, we have guest educators that come on as well. So it's, um, you know, not, it's not a in-person training that was just thrown online, but it was really built to be an online course. Can you say more about what it means? Like, I guess as someone who's gone to a, a mikvah for like more traditional reasons, I am familiar with like a mikvah attendant who like either does or doesn't ask me about like my period and how, how much I like cleaned under my fingernails, but it's not, we all know what we've come here to do today and we just do that. And so I'm curious, like in what is the training like for a guy? Like what are the kinds of things that, that you're working on with this cohort? So you'll learn, um, of course, like about the more like halakhic details of a mikvah, like what is a mikvah? What does it mean to have a mikvah? Like where, what are the sources that it comes from? Um, what are the commanded reasons and um, all of the, you know, details around that? So we're, of course, going to cover those things. But also there's um, a layer that covers a welcoming and sensitivity. So not making assumptions about why someone's coming, learning how to listen, learning how to hold space for someone who is coming in maybe for a sensitive reason, um, kind of just picking up on nonverbal cues. Like, does this person want to engage with you and talk with you about why they're there? Do they just want to be left alone and do their own thing? Kind of like just teaching people like how to pick up on these things how do you know offer different resources what resources do you have available what can you offer you know what types of immersion ceremonies can you offer the this person who's there um it kind of runs the whole range of that we you know role play different scenarios someone's coming in for a divorce like how would you handle it and run through these kinds of different scenarios or other other types of things as well and um kind of process like what you thought at the beginning what you learned when we went through that week's activity what you think now and then you get feedback from 
you know, um, the course facilitator, which is me, and also the different um, cohort members in your in your cohort. And so, are some people going through this training without being affiliated with any particular mikva in their community? Yeah. So um, some people just are interested. They just want to learn. It's just some Jewish education, like doing kind of any other Jewish education class. Some people are doing it specifically to guide at a specific um, mikvah. Some people are doing it because they want to guide outdoors and that's just like their thing. And they, they've been doing it and they just want to learn more. And um, you know, really there's the gamut of people who have been guiding for a few years and just wanted to take it um, or like really don't know that much about mikvah and just want to learn. So it's really built um, to, you know, build that base level knowledge and then go up from there. So it's, it's open for anyone. I just want to say how much I actually appreciate your language of um, commanded reasons versus other creative reasons. Um, because, and this is probably me showing my baggage here, but um, just that I, I often find when I'm speaking with somebody about an observance that to me is very technical and halachic and to them is something spiritual and beautiful, that the notion that you might be doing it because you have a sense of like, obligation and commandedness seems to almost sully it for them sometimes. Um, (laughs) and so, but what is interesting to me is whenever, so I, whenever I hear people talk about, um, using the mikvah for other reasons, um, and especially when I hear the, the phrase reclaiming mikvah, which is something that you did not say, but I've heard people say before, um, it rubs me the wrong way automatically, um, not because I disapprove, I think because I'm jealous or maybe a little resentful because like, dude, the mikvah is such a drag. I, it's such a drag, but it's not the mikvah that's the problem. But it's it doesn't not, need to be. It, but here's the thing, and this is really what I'm getting at. The things that you're talking about are the mikvah experience. The thing that's a drag is not the mikvah experience. The thing that's a drag is that it's a really lengthy, difficult process to mm, get there. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm, if you're mm-hmm. not doing all that stuff, mm-hmm. like you just cheated your way through two weeks of ease. Like that is not act- like you didn't earn this. I mean, you probably earned it with something else in your life. I don't actually mean to accuse anybody of using the mikvah for whatever. But I'm just my experience of it is not that like the immersion is mm-hmm, difficult. Mm-hmm. It's that nida is difficult, right? The experience of the process of it, the like anxiety of what's my body going to do to me now and having to view my body, like it's objectifying in the most literal sense, right? I have to view my body as this problematic physical thing that might put me in a box this week. Um, and it's a, it's a difficult experience to have to, to view your own body with suspicion. And then there's a degree of willful ignorance around your own body. Like, oh, if I don't see that, then it didn't happen. Um, it's a very difficult observance. The mikvah is truly the least of it. Um, for me, I'm only speaking for myself here, but because it is a difficult process, the mikvah feels like a finish line. And, mm. and when, and like the experience itself is like, whatever. I mean, I, I'm sure it could be a better experience right now. It feels sort of like a more a spiritually neutral experience to me, like 
darn, I put milk in my meat pot. I have to kosher that pot. It's not a very spiritual experience, but I've got to go through the process before I can use it again. It's kind of like that. Um, but the mikvah itself is like, it's, it's the thing I do at the end. It is not in fact the observance per se. Um, and so for people to be like, accessing the mikvah because they are affirming an important moment in their lives or because they want it to uh, sort of underline an emotional experience or because they're marking a personal transition that has nothing to do with halachic observance and it feels like a place of transition or rebirth for a lot of people. I find myself quite jealous of that because if I didn't have all of the stuff that leads up to it, that weighs it down, maybe I might enjoy it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, (laughs) I just want to say... Uh, I tend to not have the anxiety around Nida that you're expressing, but I don't enjoy going to the mikvah. I think that it's for me, like mostly about like, I feel a lot of pressure to like have a spiritual experience. And then I'm like, this is just weird. And it's awkward. And like, what I don't want right before I have sex is like an awkward feeling about my body in the presence of a stranger. <laughs> like, Why like not? That's, <laughs> that doesn't turn me on at all. And I'm not ashamed to say it. So yeah, I just think that like something that has been super interesting to me about watching so many people get really enthusiastic about mikvah is just that like in my experience of Jewish life, there's variety, but it's very much like within a spectrum that I feel like I fully understand. And this has been kind of like outside that. And it's one of those things where I'm like, this is not for me. I really like the first time I went to the mikvah was like, this is gonna be so spiritual. And then I was just like, not for me. (laughs) It was just me and a lady, her, (laughs) her being like, your hair didn't go all the way underwater. Like, let's do this again. And like, I don't know, I didn't, I didn't feel more or less anything. I just felt like, wow, I just did a weird thing. And I think that's okay. Like, you know, it was Sukkot last week and I like shook a lulav and like, that's a pretty weird thing to do. (laughs) So like, I, you know, but like for some people shaking a lulav is like super meaningful. And for some people going to the mikvah is super meaningful. And I think like, it's very cool that we are, that there is space for that now, but it's also... Like, I, I think that there there's also a lot of room for it might not be what you want it to be. Just the way that, like, you might feel like you're really ready for Rosh Hashanah and then you, like, go to shul and, like, don't really feel anything. And, like, sometimes that happens. That's okay. So, Jessica, we just dumped a lot of emotional reality <laughs> on you. Sorry. Respond. <laughs> Sorry. I think that... I mean, first of all, I'm here to talk about mikvah, but like there are a lot of rituals out there. And if like, you know, you come and you're all amped up for something that doesn't happen, like that's okay. Like Rosh Hashanah comes again. I mean, God willing. And, you know, like the mikvah's there if you feel like you want to try it again. But there are a lot of really wonderful creative Jewish organizations out there or non-creative, if that's your boat, that are offering a whole variety of other ways to access spirituality or, you know, religious observance or 
I mean, you know, secular, whatever, like, you know, there's so, there's so much, so much, so much in the Jewish community that like, you know, we're here to make mikvah a possibility for you. And if you try it because you heard about it and it didn't work for you, like that's also okay. As long as like your experience wasn't like deeply uncomfortable. I mean, I, I hope not if I hear what both of you said. And, um, I think like we all come with baggage and we all come with, a lot of stuff. And like, I think that's part of this training is like, people are coming with stuff and like some of that stuff, like you can, you can like offer something. Some of that stuff isn't actually none of your business. And like, actually that's also part of the training. There's some stuff that like, you should not, you know, be touching. And like, if you see a warning sign or you see this, or you see that, like there's resources that you can, you can refer that person to. And also like someone may just like not be feeling it. And like, if they don't feel it, they don't feel it. Like we hope that like we're training guides and we have, you know, mikvah oath that can offer these experiences to people. But like the world is filled with lots of different things and people. And if it's not for you and it doesn't feel good, like I'm not going to sit here and tell you, you got to go back and immerse seven more times. Like that's certainly not my my MO, but you know, I think also what, and I know you, you, you were very glad I didn't say re reclaim or reinvent the mikvah, but there's a variety of other rituals that can also be reclaimed and reinvented and made yours. And, you know, this can serve as a model, um, for more of that in the Jewish community, whether, and that's comfortable to you all or not, I'm sorry if it might not be, but like, the opening of the mikvah is also something that can serve as a model for the opening of other rituals. And, um, it can hopefully lead to, you know, more of that. So if mikvah isn't your thing, maybe down the line, something I'm not going to come up with off the top of my head that, you know, hasn't been done in a while or isn't, you know, the most accessible thing could become more accessible and could be your thing. I just want to say something I specifically do appreciate about this is that, um, separate from the like elements of the experience that you're having. And this is something you said earlier, but just to sort of affirm it and, and expand it a little, the mikvah is off limits for certain categories of people in the conventional model. Um, and so that it is hard to access if you are, depending on your circumstance, unmarried, but also people in different um, like it would be hard to imagine the mikvah that would be easy to access for, um, for like a young, not particularly Hasidic looking man on an average week, right? That's just something that isn't easily to, uh, is easily accessible in a lot of places. Even if nobody's going to quiz you about your marital status, which they may or may not, it just might be something that nobody has told you that you could think about trying. And so to affirm that this is, there, regardless of what structural barriers were there, because the mikvah, I think in, in the traditional presentation is something that's shrouded in a lot of mystery because you're only sort of told about it in generalities until it's specifically practical for you in a specific circumstance. And so to open it up to a broader range of people, genders, apparent religious observances, um, you know, uh, life stages, regardless of 
any of those people might theoretically be able to access the mikvah if they showed up at the right place at the right time, even in a conventional setting, but they might not know to do that. They might not know how, they might not know where. Um, so this is something that regardless of the experience that happens once you're inside, that there's a there's an invitation element that I'm appreciating about your presentation. Absolutely. I want to close by telling a story that brings all of us together, um, which is that uh, my friend Leah Jones has a comic that appears in an anthology called Menopause. And um, Leah had to have a hysterectomy and she um, she is not married. And she called me because she was like, what? I'm." She was feeling sad about the fact that she wasn't going to get to go to the mikvah um, yeah, because she was going to have a hysterectomy. So she wasn't going to have periods anymore. And, um, I said to her, well, why, why can't you still go to the mikvah? Like you totally can. Um, and so she did end up going to the mikvah, um, before her hysterectomy and, um, she contacted Mayim Chaim to help her kind of come up with, uh, some, some, something to say, a way to mark the occasion. Um, and she wrote about this. Um, and she actually created a comic about this experience, which references both Mayim Chaim and the Talking and Shul podcast and uh, includes myself in comic book form. Um, <laughs> so uh, about the experience. So um, I think it is, you know, it's really helpful, I think, to to talk about the ways that uh, a, a mikvah can can really help you when you feel like you need something like that. Um, and it's really cool to see all the different ways that people are using Mikvot. And um, I'm really excited about the work that I am Flame is doing. So thank you so much, Jessica. And I will put a link to purchase the book Menopause <laughs> um, in the show notes if anyone wants to to purchase it. It's really awesome. And Leia's comic is great. And we'll include a link to sign up for this online mikvah guide training for anybody who's interested in learning more and in increasing their knowledge about mikvah or becoming a guide because that sounds like a really another process um, to access to access this ritual. So. Thank you all for having me on. Such a fun conversation. Thank you, Jessica. Thank you so much, Jessica. Thank you. So for our second segment, we're going to be talking about the life and legacy of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg of Blessed Memory, who died heir of Rosh Hashanah this year. So much has been written and spoken about in the Jewish community about Ruth Bader Ginsburg life and um, in particular about what I, I have seen it coming most frequently and most intensely from other Jewish women um, for whom I think I can say broadly, like she really, especially in the last 10 years or so had become uh, a hero in all kinds of ways to, um, to a lot of women. And so I wanted to talk a little bit, uh, with both of you about what what you're what you're feeling about this particular loss to the Jewish world and to the American legal world. Um, I know none of us are lawyers. Um, and also about kind of uh, Justice Ginsburg's legacy and how we're thinking about her um, as Jews and as women. So I guess maybe we should begin with um, how did you find out about this event? 
because it was a Rosh Hashanah occurrence. So I am potted with my husband's family during COVID. And so we were all gathered. I think there were six adults and three kids um, gathered for Rosh Hashanah dinner. And I went upstairs to put my son to bed. And my brother-in-law had checked his phone and gotten an alert. Um, But all I knew was that I came downstairs and they were everybody else around the table was talking about Ruth Bader Ginsburg, talking with a lot of anxiety about the future um, and, you know, what's going to happen with replacing her. And I think walking into the middle of it, into the middle of this conversation and just having like sort of the enormity of the awareness hit me all at once in some ways. Um, I was really, it was really powerful for me. And I felt a lot of, you know, with this loss, there's the sadness of this woman's death and what that must mean for her family. And there's all of the uncertainty about the future and replacing her and the courts and legislation and women's rights um, and access to abortion. So it just sort of like all flooded me at once. And I was really down for several weeks, I want to say, just feeling like all of that doom and gloom almost constantly. So how about what about you? I did not find out until Rosh Hashanah was over. I, you know, went through the entire 49-hour holiday um, offline, and we don't get a paper newspaper. And also, maybe if it were a normal year and Rosh Hashanah involved going to shul and mingling a lot more and chit-chatting with people, maybe I would have heard something from somebody who does get a paper newspaper or who doesn't keep Rosh Hashanah in the same way and had been looking at the internet. Um, But none of that was happening. I was very distant from lots of people. And um, so I didn't find out until the holiday was over. And then I did what I always do after a Shabbos or a holiday is over and we make Havdalah. And then, you know, you check your phone. Um, And it sounds like a melodramatic thing to do, but I, I genuinely just like stared at the alert and just said no over and over. And I was, I was really stunned and sad and scared. And then I, I don't know, looked at Twitter and everybody else who'd already had two days to process this was talking about like Senate obstruction strategy and like specific cases that were going to be affected by the balance of decision-making power. And I'm like, not ready for this, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I'm just, I'm not ready for this. Like I, I, I'm, I'm two days behind on the processing cycle and I'm really sad. Um, and so, uh, you know, and, and I'm like a bit of a constitutional law nerd and I've, you know, I, I was a fan of Ruth Bader Ginsburg before it was cool. And, (laughs) um, and so, you know, I, I just, I felt very personally bereft and then I like, walked in and gave my Canadian husband like a seven minute lecture on why it was so sad. Mm-hmm. Um, and then later I gave him a, a, a further, you know, I had a little further disquisition about Marty Ginsburg and like the power of amazing partnership and how more than anything, you know, 
I want Party Ginsburg to be a model of manhood. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, so, yeah, I just I, I, I it was it was the full force of the realization. And then I saw the way where everybody else was in processing the news. And I just backed away like I just wasn't ready for it. How about you, Samar? I found out after dinner on Rosh Hashanah and I just cried and felt broken. I honestly think that a lot of my reaction is really like about my own fears for me and people I love that like my immediate thought was like, oh, my God, I need to get my birth control situation squared away immediately. (laughs) I think that I am meant eight years ago. Now, my partner and I went as um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Marty Ginsburg for Purim, and I really have enjoyed learning about Ruth Bader Ginsburg's life over the past decade and um, particularly thinking a lot about how her strategy, her legal strategy seemed to often be to get women um, equal rights to men by uh, showcasing men (laughs) who were not getting the rights that they should get because they were in a position that women were often in. Um, and I've just thought about that so many times since I read about it in, um, in a book about her, that like in this country to teach other people that someone deserves dignity, the only way to do it is to, seems to be to make it so that it could be them. And if it couldn't be them, like we just, aren't able to access the empathy around that, which I think is just like, so, I mean, it's a very smart legal strategy, but it's also, it makes me so sad because it really means like, if you can't get someone to think that they might be threatened by something, then they're unlikely to give you the rights that you think people should have. I just have really been thinking a lot about what it means for, for me personally and for this country and feeling super sad about it. I don't know that, did any of us react to this as a specifically Jewish loss first and foremost? I did not, I think. I really did not. Yeah, I didn't. And in fact, like I have seen a lot of people talk about how meaningful they thought it was to see some of the more like Jewish morning um, rituals enacted publicly. So like a lot of people that I know um responded really strongly to um, videos of Ruth Bader Ginsburg's rabbi speaking and davening. Um, And I thought that was really beautiful. But I also, I don't know, this may be unfair, because obviously, I didn't know her. And I don't know, like what her spiritual (laughs) journey was. That seems such a weird thing to say about Ruth Bader Ginsburg. But her significance to me is really very tangentially that she was Jewish and is like, 99.9% that she was just like an incredible powerhouse. That's interesting. I am, I think that the reason she stands out for me is because she's Jewish and not just any Jewish, but this particular journey from Brooklyn, from parents who worked white collar jobs to her high level of education and prestige, there's something about that journey that feels very, um, 
I don't know, that just sort of like makes me want to straighten my back a little bit. It gives me a lot of pride. Um, and, and even that part of that journey for her actually was that she, she talked about her Jewish identity, but she didn't talk about like prayer, God, going to services. None of that was really part of her, at least what I've read, part of what she talked publicly about. She talked more about principles of pursuing justice, of um, she, I don't know, she famously had Tzedek, Tzedek, Tirdof, justice, justice shall you pursue, written in her chambers. Um, and I guess even just like the fact that she was called Bubby by her grandchildren, like it's those sort of cultural markers um, that really stand out and made me feel more like I knew her. That was, you know, put in bold, bold print for me by all of her legal achievements. But really her fame for me was like, here's this incredibly prestigious Jewish woman whose journey I understand and have these touch points with. That's so interesting. I, you know, I think initially when I first became interested in Justice Ginsburg, it was not in any way that was specifically Jewish. Um, in fact, I specifically do remember the first time I went to the National Museum of American Jewish History in Philadelphia, I had this sense that the museum was about Jewish history throughout the years in the in America until it got to the mid 20th century. And then it started being about famous Jewish people. And like that is not necessarily Jewish history. And I remember specifically finding it a little bit annoying when I got to the Ruth Bader Ginsburg this is before they had a, a Ruth Bader Ginsburg specific exhibition last year. But, uh, you know, she was just like one. There was Ruth Bader Ginsburg and there was Sandy Koufax and there was and it was the sense of like the thing we this person is prominent and American for other reasons, but also they're Jewish. And I remember finding that like a little irritating as a version of what modern Jew, American Jewish history was, mm-hmm. um, because it's not like there wasn't other other things happening of actual Jewish content. Um, and so I, at, at the time I was sort of annoyed about it. I think the first time I put her in a different category in my head was when I went to see the, the RBG documentary in theaters and Mimi, as you said, seeing one of her granddaughters call her Bubby in that, that was just like, Oh, this was a totally natural interaction. That's just what her granddaughters call her. That all of a sudden put her in a different light for me. Um, and then recently reading eulogies and remembrances, um, I've been seeing more people talk about her Jewishness in a specific way or seeing her talk about her Jewishness. So for instance, she herself spoke at the Museum of American Jewish History, um, to mark the opening of an exhibition about her and spoke about, uh, you know, other Jewish women that have inspired her in specifically Jewish ways, talking about Henrietta Zold uh, wanting to personally say Kaddish for her mother. Um, and apparently Ruth Bader Ginsburg herself was denied the opportunity to say Kaddish for her own mother. Um, and that the meshing of what we think of her for in terms of the pursuit of women's equality under law and her Jewish experience is something that very much resonates with me and is not something that I really knew about her or thought about as the most important thing about her. But what's interesting is that sometimes the woman part of her history 
overshadows the Jewish part of her history in the sense that there's a lot of talk, for instance, about her inability to get a job at a law firm or a clerkship when she first graduated at the top of her law school class um, because she was a woman. Now, if she were like a Jewish man graduating from law school at that time, would she have had a really easy time getting a job in a white shoe law firm? I don't know the answer to that. I bet it's I bet it's not. Yes. Um, I don't know for sure, but it's interesting that that's not the version of the story we talk about. Her Jewishness isn't important because her her uh, her womanness was the first disqualifier, um, and of course her legal career was was about the pursuit of gender equality um, in American law um, and not primarily about religious equality of any kind. So. Um, it's just that that's sort of not the box she was in in my head mostly, but it's been very interesting to see her refracted through that lens. Um, and I was very moved when I saw the video of her funeral and the rabbi singing Akhel Malay in like, just without translating it with her Hebrew name so that if you were just like a person on the street who had no exposure, you wouldn't even know that Ruth Bader Ginsburg's name had been said in the prayer. Mm-hmm. Um, that felt like it was just for us in a powerful way. And the notion that you could have what is essentially a a highly formal, dignified state funeral, but with all the beats of a Jewish funeral felt powerful to me, less about her than it did about Jews in America today. Right. Yeah. I um, happened to be driving somewhere on the day of her funeral and just turned on the car and NPR was what was playing on the radio. And all I could hear was this rabbi chanting. And I was so confused. Like, where am I? What's coming out of the car radio? (laughs) Um, And I recognized the voice. This was Rabbi Lauren Holtzbutt, who was my rabbi. She was the Hillel rabbi when I was in college. Um, Hmm. And and so also, I think knowing Rabbi Lauren somewhat has also helped me see she had a personal relationship with Ruth Bader Ginsburg that was around Jewish ritual and Jewish notions of justice and also Jewish notions of service and community. And I can't say that I understand or could give words to what it seems that Ruth Bader Ginsburg's idea of that was, but even just the fact that she had a rabbi and she had a relationship with this woman and this congregation is very, yeah, is very powerful and I think, Zahava, as you said, like how cool that the rest of the country and the world saw that on display is really moving. I'm curious like what you all make of the the kind of like RBG as pop cultural phenomenon. I think I went through a phase of being kind of skeptical of it, but I have been thinking a lot about how important it is just to have models of people who do really important work and just like how glad I am that like she's someone I can tell my children about and feel a sense of um, pride about. And I didn't need her to be associated with the notorious B.I.G. Like that's (laughs) so random, but it's also like, I don't know. It's, it's cool. I find myself really appreciating that there's like, a legal genius who has also spawned like fun, like fun prints with which, like I have an RBG mask that is like a cute RBG print. 
And there's like children's books and documentaries and a feature film and all this stuff that it's like, I don't know. I, I really appreciate that. Like all of this stuff exists because of somebody who was dedicated to feminism and equal rights and breaking down legal barriers. Like that's cool. Does I get confused because I agree with everything you just said, Tamar, and I think it's kind of problematic for our Supreme Court justices to be celebrities because I don't want that to play into their decisions. I, I want their decisions to be based on the law and on what they, on like the sort of precedence that this is all going to set. But I think that the fame and ego part of it makes me really itchy. I, I have a lot of feelings about this. I don't love the mascotification of Ruth Bader Ginsburg because she's a tremendously complex person. Um, and like, for instance, right, we have a, a children's book for my daughter called A is for Awesome, which is like an alphabet book where each letter is represented by uh, a a prominent woman in history, um, and R is for Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Supreme Court Justice and the Queen of Dissent is what it says about her. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, one thing that I that that does make me sad about this notorious RBG thing is that it began when she began when she wrote her uh, powerful dissent in the Shelby County Voting Rights Act case. Um, and she is so much more than a dissenter. And this is what's really important. And I wonder, you know, people respond to dissents because she speaks to their anger in those dissents. But dissenting isn't her achievement. In a way, her primary achievements were before she was on the Supreme Court, that the important the the primary contributions that she made in an affirmative way, um, the arguments before the court when she, you know, when she won those victories for gender equality, where she essentially um you know, willed into existence, this jurisprudence um, establishing that the 14th Amendment protects women's rights. That's how she made law. And then those cases where she wrote the majority opinion or crafted that majority coalition, those are the cases that make law or change law. Um, and you can find lots and lots of T-shirts and socks and whatever that, that say, I dissent on them. Um and people like that as a slogan right now because they want to dissent against current events. And I appreciate that. Um, but I would hate for her legacy to be about the sum of dissent um, when she made so many affirmative contributions. And she, she wasn't about like the perfect comeback. You know, she wasn't about like the great clapback, like Ruth Bader Ginsburg eviscerated her blah, blah. Like, no, like it's just not who she was. And One thing that's really powerful for me as somebody who works in public policy is the way Ruth Bader Ginsburg is the epitome of working within the system. Um, So just it's interesting to me that she's gained this pop culture icon status in this in this moment where um, that's so defined by popular protest and marches and boycotts and frankly, a lot of blow up the system on both the left and the right. This makes her sort of profoundly countercultural. You know, it even looks sometimes from from the discourse you see online that on the left, it that working within the system is a form of capitulation to the power, the existing power structure. You know, as somebody who works 
in a very like slow incremental way in the world of public policy. Like that's obviously not how I conceive of, of my contribution. Um, and like 1965, right? Gloria Steinem is marching and Ruth Bader Ginsburg is publishing a book on Swedish civil procedure. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, but they, you know, presumably they needed each other, right? Feminist progress isn't one thing or the other, but she did more to ensure women's equality through this smart navigation of the courts than she ever personally, given her capabilities, than she ever could have by protesting on the steps outside. That doesn't mean that nobody needed to be protesting on the steps outside for things to happen, but she also modeled this this um, this path forward for a different kind of activism that's so powerful to me. Um, and so I really value that. And, you know, I hope that in her trendiness for young women that there are um, some women who need that model um, and men who need that model that find it in her. I think that, Zahava, what you're also helping me recognize is part of the challenge of the trend and the prints and the notoriousness is that it doesn't dig deep enough to get to the fact that she was an incrementalist, um, the fact that she was quite nerdy and that her clerks, I guess, famously said there, there was some like, you know, five second pause that they had to give Ruth Bader Ginsburg because she wasn't a quick talker. She sort of famously required a lot of time to get through what she wanted to say. And no print is going to capture that, but but it's important. It's an important part of her. And and valuing her means also valuing those things about her. This is a very weird thing to say, but I keep thinking of, she reminds me in a lot of ways of Devorah from Tanakh. And I don't know that story from Tanakh or Ruth Bader Ginsburg's biography well enough to like do an amazing job of supporting that claim. But I just think about <laughs> her, like, Devorah was a judge and also um, a warrior. And I think about um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg's legacy as a judge and also as someone who really like orchestrated huge, this sounds bad, but like orchestrated changes in power in a way that I think were so important and we're still kind of feeling the ripples I think in a lot of ways, Zahava, I still, I feel the way that you did, like when you first found out after Rosh Hashanah, like I just feel like I'm actually not yet in a place to have, I mean, we're recording this on the day of the Amy Coney Barrett confirmation um, hearings, and I'm just like really not emotionally in the place where I can talk about that or respond to it. I, I, find when I start talking about her that I sort of, that in my head, I've gotten to like Amy Coney Barrett and like, you know, the political fight of this all and the legislation that's at risk. Um, but then once I start talking about her, I, I come back to like, this woman fought cancer five times. That is exhausting. And I think back to like, just the wear and tear on the body. And I think back to like the way she talks about, talked about her husband, Marty and losing him. And I'm just like, it just, it gets, I gets back to this very personal place of like, ugh, may she rest in peace. Mm -hmm. 
Are we ready to move to some endorsements? Yes. Yeah. Sahaba, what do you have to endorse this month? So I am endorsing the lamb archives on the Yeshiva University website. So um, Rabbi Dr. Norman Lamb uh, passed away this year, and he was rabbi of the Jewish Center in Manhattan for about 20 years. He was also president of Yeshiva University. He was a very prominent figure in the modern Orthodox world and also somebody that I knew essentially nothing about beyond the things that I just said. Um, And there have been uh, a lot of great eulogies and retrospectives this year, um, especially because as somebody who who oversaw the education of a lot of rabbis, he uh, had a lot of ripple effects within the rabbinic world. So there are many, many remembrances. I have an annual Elul Chavruta. So like I do an annual like partner study with a friend of mine during the month of Elul. And this year she proposed that we learn some essays or sermons on the high holidays that were written by um, Rabbi Lam and and, uh, Rabbi Adin Steinsaltz, who also passed away this year. It's been so interesting to encounter Rabbi Lam in this way. And um, so Yeshiva University maintains archives of his sermons. Um, so that's the Lamb archives, Drashot Shedarashti, Sermons of Rabbi Norman Lamb. And there's a sermon collection that you can do keyword searches of. But when you get in there, it is mostly his own, like scans of his own typewritten sermons wow. with his own handwritten annotations. So like a sermon that he gave at the Jewish Center in 1973 that he wrote on a typewriter and like wrote in the Hebrew words by hand and underlined things. And um, so that's just cool as a piece of material culture. Um, but also just to encounter him as like a very modern and American thinker. And the first sermon that my friend and I read was a Rosh Hashanah sermon about uh, Akedat Yitzchak, the binding of Isaac, in which he's drawing lots of analogies. And he's saying, you know, we invested so much in the space race and getting to the moon. And now people are talking about going to Mars when there are people here that are hungry, um, you know, and talking about ending the Vietnam War and things that were like woven through his Rosh Hashanah sermon in a way that... um, is close enough to our current moment in history that it's directly meaningful to me in a way that often reading historical sermons uh, or, you know, reading rabbinic essays are are not. And so specific to the, you know, the American context and um, to sort of a, an upper West side, you know, like educated, very American population and, and just um, it's just been very interesting to encounter him as a rabbinic thinker speaking from an American perspective to an American audience in this prominent way. Um, and he was, he was very much known as sort of a master sermon giver. Um, and so it's just cool to have access to all of this. And I won't say that like every idea that we encountered is something that I will treasure because, you know, nobody will speak to you every single time, but it's, it's very cool to have access to this. So the lamb archives on the YU website and we'll, and we'll link it in show notes. I love hearing about your Elul Chabruta <laughs> um, every year. I would like an update on how it goes. <laughs> we need the archives of the Elul Chabruta and what yes. you guys have learned together. I really do need that. <laughs> it's been such a broad range of things. We've, we've you know, because every year we're like, what, what are we just in the mood for to spend a month on? It's cool. That's so cool. I have tried and failed to set up an El Chavruta, so um, I am impressed that you keep going every year. 
Um, Mimi, what do you have to endorse? So just as a coda to our conversation about Ruth Bader Ginsburg, I want to endorse the Jewish Women's Archive put together tributes to RBG from several Jewish women, um, some of them lawyers, um, authors, just sort of people who had a sort of a personal um, interaction or relationship with RBG. And it's really beautiful. Um, in particular, I want to point people to, um, a tribute written by Ariella Migdal in which she talks a little bit about, um, the role that Marty Ginsburg played in Ruth Bader Ginsburg's success and just in her, um, in her career. Anyway, so that's one. And then number two, I'm just continuing the trend of giving you like my comfort, not very Jewish, not very sophisticated um, recommendations. There's a really great card game out there called Dutch Blitz. It's sort of part Uno, part speed, hard to describe. But the thing that's great about it is that you can play it with just two players And it's really different, um, you know, depending on how you shuffle the deck. So um, I have had so much fun playing this card game Dutch Blitz with my husband on these long, endless nights. And maybe you are board game or card game lovers who need something that works for two people. Highly recommend Dutch Blitz. Is it like just regular playing cards or do you need to buy a specific set of Dutch Blitz cards? You do need to buy a specific set of Dutch Blitz cards. And they do, they, I don't know, they say that this was like an Amish card game. I'm sure it was at some point. Um, Yeah, lots of fun. I want to endorse a book called Lady in the Lake by um, Laura Lippman, um, which is a miss thriller kind of um it's a book about a woman living in the 50s in Baltimore um a Jewish woman who's getting divorced and kind of trying to find herself anew and I am not from Baltimore so I can't speak to how accurately it depicts Baltimore itself but it's just a very, it's a depiction of Jewish families that feels very real and lived in, in a way that I often, that I don't often see in books. Um, And like, it's, there's like a whole thing about how like somebody still wants to keep kosher and how crazy it is that they still have two sets of dishes and their spouse is like not really into that. And it's like, that's just something that you don't read about. (laughs) Like that is a real thing that I know a lot of people who have like had conversations with their spouse about, but it's like, I don't know if I've ever seen it in a book before. Um, And like the, the Jewishness is not like the main point of the book, but it's central enough that it, um, it doesn't feel like tacked on at all. It feels, it feels real. Um, And it's just one of those books that's like, super engrossing I finished it in like two or three days and I really um enjoyed it and felt very mm, just like it's great to have a book that like takes up your whole brain and there's nothing you're not kind of like mentally making your grocery list in the background 
Um, so that sounds great. Mm -hmm. Can I just give a quick bonus endorsement? Because a couple of times we've mentioned um, the role that Marty Ginsburg, Justice Ginsburg's husband, played in her life. Um, and for those who haven't seen it, um, in 2000, in uh, in 2010, um, Marty Ginsburg was supposed to deliver a speech um, at the 2010 10th Circuit Bench and Bar Conference on life in the federal judiciary. Like he was supposed to give the speech, I think, essentially as spouse of a justice. Um, and he was scheduled to deliver it, but instead he passed away unexpectedly. And um, he, he passed away from cancer shortly before the conference. And Justice Ginsburg came in his place and, and gave the speech that he was supposed to give that he had written um, and spoke a bit about their early uh, early marriage together. And um, it's, it's really quite beautiful. And so I will include that, uh, that link in our show notes as well. That sounds awesome. great. I love every anecdote about their marriage. Right. Like I want a hundred more stories about their marriage. It is so heartwarming. There's no other word for it. Like it's like relationship goals for sure. Thank you so much for listening. If you have a minute, it would be great if you could leave a review for us on Apple podcasts or let us know what you'd like us to discuss in future episodes. You can always leave a comment on a post on our Facebook page, search for Jewish Public Media, or on our website, jpmedia.co. Choose Talking and Jewel from the list of podcasts. You can also donate to Jewish Public Media at jpmedia.co, and that is a really great way to support our show and make sure that we can keep bringing you new episodes every month. Sahaba, thank you so much. Thank you. This was fantastic. Yeah. Thank you so much, Mimi. This was awesome. Thanks, ladies. I'm excited to talk to you next month already. See you soon. Bye. Bye.